listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Our guest in episode 24 is artist Emiliano Trocco, a painter's painter in the academic tradition whose paleo art has been likened to those artists whose work so shaped early 20th century paleontology during the pre-dinosaur renaissance, a modern-day Zdeniak Burian, if you will. Hear what he makes of this and many other things besides, as Mark speaks to him later. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is The Ultimate Dinosaur Book, written by David Lambert and published by Dorling Kindersley in 1993. But first, uh, an old Devonian friend is discovered to have been even more friend-shaped than hitherto estimated. <laughs> is that not so, Niels? Yes, yes. Uh, Dunkleosteus. Of course, the the only Devonian friend any of us could name, right? Um, (laughs) You won't have missed this uh, if you are at all in the loop, so uh, let's get it out of the way first. Many a fish in the Devonian Sea would meet a Dunkleosteus and leave the encounter quite a bit shorter than it was. So, it is poetic irony that it is now the swimming guillotine itself that finds itself merely half the fish it used to be. Aha! A new paper... (sighs) in MDPI Diversity by Russell K. Engelman, not et al., it was just him, is called uh, Devonian Fishtail. A new method of body length estimation suggests much smaller sizes for Dunkleosteus terrelli. The thing with Dunkleosteus, of course, is that we only ever really find its head. Uh, The rest of it is cartilage, uh, which doesn't fossilize. So we've always had to kind of imagine what its body is shaped like. And, and of course, everyone went extreme. Extreme, extreme. yes, of course. I mean, imagine extreme, extreme. a scary fish and you're imagining a great white shark, of course. And traditionally, it was always imagined to be shaped like a shark, long and sleek, and estimated to be anywhere from 5 to 10 meters long, you know, well bigger than a great white shark. But uh, Engelman notes that this isn't really particularly based on rigorous data. It's just uh, wishful thinking, really. Um, So in order to make some uh, scientific headway with this, Engelman uses the distance from the orbit to the operculum, uh, that is, in normal people language, the distance from the eye socket to the cover of the gill slits. Uh, Now, in extant fish, we happen to find a strong correlation between this uh, orbit opercular length and the animal's total Body length, what fortune. The rest is a matter of maths. And by this metric, Engelman finds Dunkleosteus to be about mm, three to four meters. I mean, uh, it's a a dinky dunk. (laughs) This Sounds like it's half head at that point. It's just a big head with this little fish body behind it, like a tiny, like like one of those guppies from that old, um, you know, board game thing where you have to dangle the little fishing rods. It's a bulldog. Devonian mola. Yeah. Yeah, Mola. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the, it means the dunk was shaped much more squat and, and deep than we have traditionally imagined it, uh, less like a shark and more like a goldfish or a bulldog or, well, maybe not quite as extreme as a Mola, but we're in that ballpark, basically. Um, no shortage of memes, of course. Uh, if you're listening to this, you've probably made a few. <laughs> 
one of the most intimidating animals of deep time, and it has been downgraded and humiliated. Um, the thing is, though, nothing that mouth is just as yeah. big as it ever was. No exactly. one's saying the mouth is any smaller. It's not any, it's not going to like cut you in half. <laughs> I was going to say that the business end of it is still the same shape and size as it ever was. Precisely. And uh, Dunkleosteus is still quite high on a, a very long list of animals that I would rather not meet while swimming. Uh, the paper is open access. Yay! Yay! Link in the thingamajig. Um, go read it. And I've made it all the way here without a single slam dunk joke, so go me! Hey! Oh, I was so looking forward to them, Neil. Oh, you almost did it all without one. <laughs> uh. <laughs> anyway, wow, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, Mark, from Swimmers to Flyers, uh, an origin of a significant flight adaptation from you. Yes, here we have the origin of the Propatagium. Propatagium in Non-Avian Dinosaurs by Eureka Uno and Tatsuya Hirasawa, published in Zoological Letters. And as I'm sure most listeners already know, Propatagium, or Propatagium, I've never tried to say it, Propatagium. I'm going to go with prop. Propatagium is a membrane that joins the wrist and shoulder in birds, and within that is the Propatagial muscle, or sometimes referred to as the Propatagial tendon, though it's a muscle. Um, so as you know, birds, they're arms are never fully extended in the same way that we can extend ours. They uh, always elbow, sort of flexed at the elbow and they have this propatagium linking um, the shoulder and the wrist and it forms the leading edge of the wing in birds. And then the question is, of course, when did that evolve? When did that appear um, in the theropod dinosaurs? Clearly it evolved at some point, but was it, did it evolve in crown birds? Is it further back? I mean, we happen to know, the authors point out, of course, that propatagium <laughs> does appear to be present in both in Corbidipteryx and Microraptor. So, of course, there's evidence of it being present in um, non-avian Maniraptorans. But then how far back does it go exactly? And are these structures is it most likely that they're homologous or did they maybe convergently evolve in, say, paravians and oviraptorosaurs? Well, unfortunately, it turns out that soft tissue preservation is rather rare in Mesozoic dinosaur fossils. Um, so you can't just go and look at a load of... Yeah, I know, crazy. You can't just go and, have, go and look at a load of propatagiums because they're not there. Um, Cordicterix and Microraptor being very much the exception. So they thought there must be some other way to determine whether or not animals had such a structure and thought that well, perhaps you could look at the angle of the, um, the elbow joint and the wrist joint. Because I mentioned having a propatagium, um, and well, birds generally have uh, a limited degree of flexion in their uh, or limited degree of angles that the wrist joint and elbow can achieve. So they thought maybe if you go and look at skeletons, they'll give you a clue. Um, they started out by looking at animals that were well, birds. <laughs> um, so birds, of course, definitely have a propatagium, and they looked at non-dinosaurian uh, diapsid reptiles, which definitely don't, and to see if you could actually tell, you know, whether there's any correlation between the the angles uh, in sort of articulated forelimbs and having a propatagium. And there did appear to be. So then they looked at a load of dinosaurs. And it turns out that, um, as you might expect, um, the evidence is that it evolved in Maniraptorans. Maybe a bit surprising that it's not there in other pseudorosaurs, perhaps, but it's there in Maniraptorans pretty much from the start. Um, okay, so yeah, the structure so appears to be homologous. It's, it's as well, uh, probably. Although the lack of complete articulated therizinosaur forelimbs is a problem, <laughs> but uh, yeah, almost certainly was there to some extent. 
Although basically, the closer you get to birds, the more unsurprisingly, the more bird-like the limb becomes. Um, in particular, they know a big difference between uh, non-Paravian maniraptorans, like therizinosaurs, um, and Paravians, so you know dromaeosaurs and troodonts. Um, in the paper, they're coded as groups C and C three and C four. C four being the Paravians. Um, in in both groups, you have quite limited. Um, L or restricted elbow angles, but mm. it's only in the dromaeosaurs you also start seeing the more limited um, wrist angles as well. Um, but that said, there is a caveat here that dromaeosaurs appear to have a lot more uh, radial movement possible in the wrist. So basically, if you think about if you lay your right hand flat on a table, um, and then if you move your hand, sort of move your hand to the left then that's a, a radial movement. Which, as you can imagine, in birds, right. doesn't really happen. They, if a bird flexes its wing, then the arm's moving, or the, yeah, the hand, rather, is moving in the opposite direction. Um, so, yeah, it appears that dromaeosaurs have more radial flexibility still in their wrists than birds do. They haven't quite evolved the bird-like um, mechanism in the arm that gives them the distinctive flight stroke. Um, mm. So, yeah. It's um, basically the decrease in preserved wrist joint angles observed at phylogenetic position more derived than that the decrease in elbow joint angle. So the elbow, the decrease in elbow joint angle occurs first, then the decrease in the preserved wrist joint angle um, becoming most, I don't want to use the word restricted, <laughs> but most, most restricted in birds, even though it does form a crucial part of the whole, um, the interlocking mechanism in the arm that makes it easy for them to um, generate the flight stroke through very for the, through the sort of most limited muscle movement possible because a lot of it's occurring in the bones. Right. But, um, yeah, they hypothesize that in dromaeosaurs, the retention of this radial movement was likely due to, to do with prey capture. Um, I mean, they are called maniraptorans after all. <laughs> so uh, yeah. they yeah. It might have been related to them grabbing things, um, grabbing prey with their hands, and hence they retain this movement. Um, and then that was then lost in birds. Um, and they view the dromaeosaur state as an intermediate stage on the way to the bird-like state. And there's a very nice uh, figure five in the paper, which illustrates this really well. And lots of other pretty figures showing um, bird musculature and whatnot. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so nice little paper. Um, if you have been drawing dromaeosaurs without um, propatagiums, then you're probably not correct. And you should go back and draw propatagiums on all of them. Although I think... Most people probably are at this point, even if they don't realise it. If you're yeah. giving them proper wings, then they by necessity have to have one. Exactly. Conversely, if you're illustrating non-maniraptor and coelurosaurs with propatagiums, there is no evidence for that, and the evidence is actually quite to the contrary. So in terms of um, how their articulated forelimbs have been preserved, there's no evidence of a propatagium there, according to this paper. Right. So um, too, too great a range of um, flexion or movement in those bones. So yeah, stop it if you are. Stop it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, thank you, Mark. And finally, how does the little ankylosaur improve its armoured throat and add to the Cretaceous score its own melodious note? You get everything here, folks. Even though Niels may have deprived us of his jokes, you have some Carolian verse pastiche from me. Anyway, that's right. In quite possibly the most exciting news this month, which I highly doubt any listener could have missed, but which I nevertheless could not help covering, 
Pinacosaurus gets its own larynx. As described in the paper, an ankylosaur larynx provides insights for bird-like vocalization in non-avian dinosaurs by Yoshida et al. Dinosaur vocalization, or at least acoustics, uh, has long been a subject of great fascination. And even without evidence of a voice in non-avian dinosaurs, extant reptiles have shown that sounds could have been produced in all sorts of ways, such as snorting, hissing, booming, and what have you. But larynx, though unique to tetrapods, are extremely rare in the non-avian dinosaur fossil record, thanks to their being chiefly cartilaginous and difficult to preserve. The key elements discovered here are the cricoid and the aretinoid, structures that would have supported muscles involved in opening and changing the shape of the airway and which, by extension, could have influenced vocalization of some description. Comparisons made by the paper's authors with birds and reptiles suggest that Pinacosaurus's larynx is closer to that of birds. There is, a, as usual, a significant caveat here in that it is the syrinx that is responsible for birds' voices. The larynx is not a vocalizer, but a sound modifier. From the paper, the larynx of Pinacosaurus was specialized for opening the glottis and possibly a sound modifier with other vocal tracts, such as the trachea and oral, esophageal and pharyngeal cavities. As usual, it's all just a little complicated. Our friend, <laughs> paleontologist and artist, Dr. Mark Whitten, has written an excellent Twitter thread for us lay folk on some of the implications of these findings, to which we will also be linking in the show notes. The paper is published by Communications Biology and is open access. Hooray! Yeah, it's all these things saying, oh, it tweeted like a bird, because it had like bird-like larynx. It's just, no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm wondering, right, is that if having a larynx is the ancestral condition, which I assume is the case because I'm a synapsid uh, and I have a larynx, uh, mm. if if that was your sound-producing organ to begin with, and... and um, crocodilians use it also. Uh, why would you evolve a syrinx to make sounds when you already have a larynx to sort of take care of that? That's that's kind of what I'm wondering. It's it's a very good question. Mark Whitten does touch a little on this um, in his thread. Um, I'm not on Twitter so, anymore. No, so. but but when you know when we link it uh, to it in the uh, in the show notes, you can you know explore that a little further on your own. It's a uh, prettier sounds. Yeah, it's it's fascinating and complicated and and headache inducing, but uh, yeah. yeah. At what point the syrinx evolved is a bit of a mystery, isn't it? At the moment, I thought. Yeah, complicated well, yes, and headache inducing sounds like singing to me. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of singing, vintage dinosaur art. Vintage dinosaur art. The ultimate dinosaur book, written by David Lambert. Um, I hadn't mentioned the illustrators in my introduction at the top of the show um, because the main images in this book consist of photographs of some beautifully made sculptures by a number of artists. Uh, the book credits these as Roby Braun, David Donkin, John Holmes and Centaur Studios. Yes, I should say there are quite a few illustrators in here. It's quite a bit of 2D illustration. I mean, you have John Civic, Graham Rose. Of course. The typical yes. stuff you'd expect in an English book, you know, uh, Steve Kirk, Graham Rose Warren, of course, John Civic, 
the same kind of stuff you would uh, expect in Dinosaurs magazine. Right, yes. but also you have these amazing, and by far the most memorable aspect of the book are these amazing 3D it's model photography, all these models that they um, apparently devised often, especially for this book. Um, not always. Turns out that the cover star Allosaurus, sculpted by Roby Brown, was actually a maquette for a life-size animatronic, of all things, which you can discover if you go on his art station. So that wasn't made especially for this, but a lot of them were. And a lot of the photography was reused in later DK books and merchandise, That's you know, right. stickers activity packs and yes and family fun centers or <laughs> it is through uh, the reuse of these illustrations that i became familiar with the images for this book actually because i never had this book um itself but um but i saw many of his illustrations reused later in many other publications um that aside i do think this is probably quite a uh, a seminal publication for for a great many of us um published as it was absolutely in, in the same year as uh, the release of Jurassic Park. It, I mean, it's this high dinosaur renaissance. <laughs> oh, so it's, it's that, that early, is it? It's 93, it's, yeah. I think, uh, I, uh, yes. I think I got this book a few years after the fact. And I remember reading it and being quite impressed by what I was reading. Uh, that's, of course, David Lambert's uh, work. Because this was the first book in which I read stuff like Marginocephalians and... Thyreophorans and yes. finding out that Clades go with the ceratopsids rather than with the ornithopods. And oh, yes. you know, it really felt like cutting edge stuff to me. And I got this oh, yeah. you know, in the late nineties, sort of towards the uh, the tail end of my childhood dinosaur phase. You grow out of it, they say. Yeah. And I got this along with something like the Great Dinosaurs by Zdenjak Spinar and uh, Phil Curry which we'll come to talk about at some point, uh, I think which came out a year later, and which in terms of science is not quite as cutting edge as this. So, That's yeah, surprising. Uh, my copy, I still have it. It's in a, a, an advanced state of disintegration, which should tell you something. I devoured this. <laughs> yeah, I got this when I was possibly a bit too young to be reading it, as in the language and everything's rather advanced. I mean, I was quite... A yeah. good reader as a child but i still found it a little bit hard going in 1993 when i was what five that's uh, another thing isn't it it's <laughs> one of the first books we got that was really written with adults in mind it's yes it's a general audience so it's definitely yeah. aimed at older children and adults accessible to both and it's not it's not really in a kind of kid-friendly tone at all but at the same time it's very accessible for a popular extremely audience. accessible exactly so richly illustrated and Fantastic about illustrators. I mean, really best than anything else you could have picked up at that time, I think. Uh, and especially with all the the models, really, it's all about the models for me. They're, they're fantastic. I, by, as I said, by far the most memorable aspect of the book. I was absolutely entranced by these models as a child because they really brought the animals to life in a way that somehow, I almost said two-dimensional illustration couldn't which isn't quite true <laughs> but the models have an immense amount of presence <laughs> yeah i know sorry but they, they have they have an immense amount of presence that they feel solid and real because they are and yes, okay, that's exactly. let, let's, less controversially i will say they feel they have a lot more presence to me than cg i mean the cg now in dk yeah. books is a lot better than it was now that they've got that nation involved and he's made sure everything's a lot less atrocious. No, you're right. I do understand what no, you're no, talking exactly. about. There's a class to them, which you don't really get with 3D stuff, especially early 2000s 3D stuff. No, it can't quite touch the character and solidity of 
because literally solidity of the models in here. And as I said, I think particularly the ones sculpted by Roby Braun. Yeah. The Allosaurus on the cover is possibly even the best example. I mean, yes, of course, there are aspects of this now, of the models in here that are outdated because, yeah, it's 1993. So, yes, they're a bit skinny. The forelimbs oriented in the wrong way. The Cobsognathus has two fingers, which actually I think is rather cute. It makes it a bit of a... Um, you know, T-Rex. Yeah, well, a bit of a time capsule. It's it's very it's, it's extremely of its time having two fingers. I think it, it's just a fantastic artifact in that way. More than that, it's it's a wonderful little model when it popped it up. It is all over beautiful. The place, like I said, no, it really is. Stickers yes. and so on. Mm-hmm. But yes, the Allosaurus. Um, you really get perhaps because it was made as a maquette for a life size model. You really get the impression of the animal's um, muscularity, its power, its size. Even though it's a like 45 centimeter long model it is beautiful um, no that is exactly right it looks that is like exactly a, right you can imagine that thing being huge it looks like a big powerful animal and he's got the gait exactly right the way that the forelimbs are swinging into the midline as it's walking forward um it's really impressive and it actually always annoyed me a bit that um he made a t-rex and the t-rex is on page 56 and it's a really it reproduces a really small photo right. <laughs> And then meanwhile, on the previous page, you have a double page spread of the Centaur Studios uh, T-Rex, which, yeah, it's, yeah. it's good it's, at all. Mm, mm. There, are, there are a few things that bother me about it, though. The main thing that I find very you know, distracting about it is the face, because they seem to have made the eyes far too large for the orbits. Yes. Usually artists are in the different direction. Yeah, well, there was a tendency around that time to make them way too small and sunken and, uh, yeah, to like make it look cool and e- evil and extreme. But, but, but uh, this one just looks looks comical because of that. It looks adorable. It looks like a little puppy. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really cute. I don't know. I, I think T-Rex should look that cute. I know that if an animal looks cute, if you do an honest reconstruction, it ends up looking cute, then fine, but... Yeah, the eyes are definitely too big for the orbit. That and the neck, something a bit off about the neck, although it can be hard to tell because it's twisted round a bit. Um, but I've seen other photos, I think, of the same model where the neck just looks a bit misshapen. Um, one of the legs here seems to be incredibly yeah. straight. And uh, well. the hands, the, the palms, for lack of a better word, are almost facing outwards, not unlike the Dynamation model, which was still in production at this time, I think. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Some of the other models are extremely impressive. I think this was the first time I saw Carnotaurus done right. Bear in mind, it was often hard to get pictures of, you know, Cherkus models and things back in the day when you were a little kid. No one was taking you to see exhibitions with big Cherkus models. Um, so I think it's the first time I've seen Carnotaurus really done properly, especially the arms, because I don't think mm. anyone could quite believe yes. what the arms were like. And the bronze model in here pretty much nails it. I mean, he was—he clearly paid extreme attention to detail. I mean, you can see on his website, if you go on his art station and go to the dinosaurs page and preferably ignore a lot of the other stuff, <clears throat> um, <laughs> you can see he did make a series of skeletal and musculoskeletal reconstructions when doing these things. And that really shows all that attention to detail. I think the Baryonyx is his as well. Was the esteemed Dr. Angela Milner involved with this book? She usually was. She was, yeah. She wrote the forebird, actually. Oh, no, the Baryonyx is actually Centaur. Oh, there you go. Now that you mentioned it, the hallmarks suddenly become that much more uh, evident. Well, as far as those go, this is one of the nicer ones. It's um, yeah, it's a better reconstruction than the T-Rex, I must say. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I think it's a lot better oh, than the yes. T-Rex, especially, especially for the time. 
they've really given a good impression of this long low animal um and the way the back humps up like that isn't far off i mean it, i've seen some quite tall um spines well, <laughs> i've seen some vertebrae from baryonyx with quite tall neural spines that would have given it that sort of a, appearance and yeah the, the neck the the as it's labeled long straight neck <laughs> Because, of course, it's DK book from back in the day. Everything's got to have a swarm of labels around it, pointing yes. out really obvious things like ah, toe, really? foot, elbow. Ankle. <laughs> yeah, elbow, <laughs> hand. It's like, yeah, we can see that. I mean, yeah, so some things are fair enough, like po- pointing out that the jaws were narrow when you've only got a 2D representation or, you know, fine, okay. Stiffen tail, okay. But yeah, elbow, hand, finger claw, like, yeah. Okay. Not really necessary. <laughs> Just in case um, dinosaur confirmation was a strange new territory for you. So on the next page, we have Spinosaurus. And the reconstructions here are all over the place. <laughs> yes. You can say that again. We've got Rosewarn. We've talked about the Rosewarn Spinosaurus. That's a pretty good one. And then above that is, is that Steve Kirk? The yawning one? Six, yeah, 60 top right. Yeah, that's Steve Kirk. Yeah. Um, and then the cutout is completely outdated even for the time. The cutout is Braun again. I did just check this. <laughs> oh, I've got it wrong before. And that's it is, interesting. Yeah. Is he, uh, I said he did a lot of these anatomical cutaway studies. I mean, he made that Carnotaurus model, which is also flayed. And yeah, he yes. illustrated this. Um, and this is more Stromer-like. So it has the Stroma-ish generic Allosauri skull and the four-fingered tiny hands, <laughs> which, as it turns out, is completely wrong. But of course, very common at the time to depict it like that. This, I find it, I mean, yeah, as you say, intriguing, the mix. This is really on the cusp of it definitively exactly. switching to yeah. the crocodilian jaw. And it feels it feels very honest to me. I know it seems like a bit weird and inconsistent, but they talk in the in the text about how it probably had this lower skull, but it was a bit of an unknown. And I like the fact that they illustrate both possibilities here. It's mm. actually, um, That's a good yeah. point. But yes, definitely the more croc, croc looking ones of um, the ones with the lower skull of age better. <laughs> so yeah. <at> least. Yes. <laughs> well, I've said it before. Every Spinosaurus is a time capsule. Yeah. That's another thing that, you know, I love about this. Same as the Compsognathus, this is a time capsule. It's, it's so indicative of that time and the sort of changes that they were going through. And you'll note as well that it appears immediately after Baryonyx in the book. They're grouped together. What else have we got in here? We've got lots of scaly Maniraptorans, obviously. Well, speaking of <laughs> speaking of which, that uh, that distinctive di- uh, Deinonychus, um, which uh, is one of those illustrations that went on to appear everywhere. Yes. Yeah. And that is a model from the Natural History Museum. That's right with its uh, curious it beckoning hand and extremely reptilian or snake-like look to it um it's yeah lizardy it's um <laughs> quite something very very unlike how it illustrated now so this yeah. I, I think i think maybe that's even a bit retro for the time uh i guess they had a good model available and they used it but even yeah. for the time that's distinctly overtly lizardy and reptilian Speaking of time capsules, Segnosaurus yes. appears. Segnosaurus is here. That's a fantastic one. It appears at the end of the sauropods because they just didn't know where to put it, basically. And again, it's very honest about uh, how much is known, 
or isn't known. And there are different hypotheses around um, hypotheses around feeding behavior. So you've got a termite eating one, a fish eating one, a plant eating one. Uh, but yeah, the main illustration there is, I don't know, it's definitely, it looks like a theropod. If the third possibility is true. So there's a paragraph talking about the possible, the, what clade it could have been, whether it's a sauropodomorph or, or ornithischian or weird ornithischian or what. But they said, then they sort of settle on the theropod idea and say, if the third possibility is true, it might make Segnosaurus into a dinosaur oddity, a plant-eating theropod. Oh. <laughs> Which, of course, back then was a crazy idea, like a plant-eating theropod. That's Imagine what I love that. about these time capsules, the times when, when the truth is staring them in the face. Mm-hmm. Well, easy to say that now. <laughs> yep. It was. It did seem like a crazy idea at the time. Like, wow, it's like plant-eating theropod with big claws. My favorite model is probably Styracosaurus. Apart I from the was Allosaurus just the about to mention. Yes, I'm glad you said that, Niels. I was on the point of mentioning it. Yeah, it's beautiful. I like that very much as well. I think it's another brawn. Um, I, I imagine so, yeah. But it is, yeah, it's a brawn. Um, I thought it was. It seems to be a style. Yeah, yeah, that's a very nice one. And again, many people copied it. Many people copied the colours. The colours um, are beautiful, yeah. Probably for that reason, it was well, recognisable. I suppose it was, in a way, it was a cheeky way of making a toy of the, <laughs> the DK illustration. Or sort well, of it's, um, it's, no, but that's a brilliant idea they had for that because, um, you know, ones like the, the Allosaurus that you mentioned, um, I really would love a figure of that even now. Um, I, so, yeah. yeah. Even I wouldn't mind one. I, I think, <laughs> that's saying a great deal. You know deal. how Beast of the Mesozoic has been this old buck Styracosaurus like special edition? Yeah. Yes. Um, maybe they should do one of that, that those colours on, on the Beast of the Mesozoic. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, and that, there's no stopping your painting one yourself, of course, you know, although that uh, these things aren't cheap. Um, so that's... Uh, no. That Beast of the Mesozoic is not cheap. Okay, but yeah, back to, back to the model in the book. Yes, there are things you would change these days, the feet being a bit too... Well, especially the hands elephantine. being a bit too like like rhino paws, yeah, or a bit too elephantine yeah. in particular, I guess. Um, lovely head though, uh, really like that. And as you said, the the subtle subtlety of the coloration, the fact that there's yeah. a little bit of a flush it's... of reddish orange in the frill, and uh, but not, it's not over yeah. the top. Yeah, and there isn't really much. Nice there isn't much rhinoceros in the face. No, sometimes uh, a... sometimes an artist will make will will put subconsciously or otherwise put some rhinoceros traits in the face in the lip especially yes. and that's absent here it's it's a proper beak i hate to bring toys in again but i especially have to think of the jurassic park triceratops toy which looks that's, so much that's like both a, toys and jurassic park definitely i know, I know it's a double but it has so much <laughs> of a, has so much of Okay, so first of all, someone would clearly put effort into sculpting it. Secondly, it has so much of a rhino face and a rhino lip. It's also, the, the Styraxaurus is also notably lacking cheeks, uh, which is, you know, quite prescient. But I mean, I mean, oh, I mean these things go, go back and forth, don't they? So perhaps it's just a matter of landing on... Yes. Landing on that particular uh, side of the... Or is it? Yeah. Or, or is it, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, clearly it didn't have mammalian-style muscular cheeks. I mean, that then again, it has been proposed, hasn't it? But it seems to be unlikely because, well, they're reptiles. But they could have had sort of pseudo-cheeks or 
skin flaps basically <laughs> like skin loose flaps. skin there that could have functioned as a cheek or they could have just had lips um and no cheek ready to speak of at all i mean it's still a bit up in the air isn't it i know some people prefer one or the other um and obviously if you're sculpting or illustrating something you have to make your choice um but i think i throw somewhere it's still a bit up in the air but yeah I suppose interesting because at that time, most artists, and for quite a long time, most artists did favour cheeks more than anything. I think the tendency recently to illustrate them without has almost been a bit of a backlash to that. Um, saying, yeah, well, you've seen all these ones with cheeks, but what about if they didn't? You know, then oh, yeah. illustrating that. I suppose oh, yes. you look at the Triceratops in here, they all have cheeks. Uh, mostly. It's a quite... But then it was this, well, this triceratops was sculpted by a different, um, by, by the uh, uh, Centaur Studios, so a different sculptor, a different set of sculptors. Even. Right, but I mean, the, the illustrations as well seem to make it cheeky, especially the one on page oh, yes. 66. No, that's true. So yeah. uh, once again, it's almost as if they're hedging their bets, you know, just like with the Therizinosaurus and the uh, Spinosaurus, like, okay, we're just going to illustrate both and... Uh, Whichever side it lands on, we're we're gonna have we're gonna have the right one. Yeah, which yeah. again, I, I like that. Which, I like which is, yeah, I do, I saying, do too. Yeah, it's honest. It's saying no, it it is as you said, Mark. It's honest. Yeah, you don't exactly, exactly know. Here are some possibilities. Fine, you know. Yeah, sure. It tells people that there's no definitive look for these things. That there are some th- some aspects that are open to interpretation. Some aspects of the anatomy that just aren't known yet. And I think that's a good thing. So there. <laughs> so there, of course. <laughs> I will say, as you said earlier on, this is a very formative book for me at the time, even if I could not really read it particularly well. It's, first of all, I, mean, I grew up into it anyway. <laughs> but secondly, the, the model photography, the illustrations, the, as we've said a few times, discussion of different ways things could be interpreted, um different styles of reconstruction I mean, actually i do remember that quite distinctly as a kid things like the fact that there's only celestes and it we pointed out you know this reconstruction doesn't have a horn maybe it did have a horn or maybe it didn't and um maybe ceratopsians had cheeks and maybe they didn't maybe sauropodomorphs had cheeks <laughs> i mean there's a there's a uh well i think it's massospondylus with restored with cheeks in like a head profile Things yeah, like and that. Chisaurus as well. Yeah, I might be mistaken. The way that it explains the underlying principles behind reconstruction and the different way things can be interpreted and just the sheer yeah. breadth of the thing. I mean, there wasn't yeah, really any exactly. other kind of book like this you could pick up at the time that just went through mm. so many different dinosaurs and all of them were really well illustrated. Um, you know, there were no cop-outs in here. It's, yes, they really pay a lot of attention to everything that they profile, and there's there's a lot of it, and it was it was bang up to date. Really great model photography. I don't, I mean, yeah, I, wrong? I mean it, it it is pretty comprehensive in in all those respects. I mean, calling itself uh, the ultimate dinosaur book is a tall order, but I think for its <laughs> yeah. time, for its time, it really did live up to it. I would say, yeah, it's got the stuff to back it up. Yeah, there there there, there was a class to this book. I remember. Picking this up in the 90s, there was just a class to this. I was like, okay, this is the thing. This is is everything I knew. I knew from Dinosaurs Magazine, and now I felt like, okay, this is the big thing. This this felt serious. This was the serious stuff in here. Mm. Um, 
really well researched models and text in you know comprehensive text everything with swarms of labels i mean of course that adds to the um authoritative feel in dk books the swarms of labels saying things like oh, yes. shoulder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not always necessary but you know as a kid it's like wow it's so it felt so no, scientific and, and adult yeah 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 oh at, at, at the time i adored dorling kindersley books for, for their production values and their their sense of uh, authoritativeness um yeah i i absolutely went to them for for everything like the eyewitness books for instance they just yeah you you just felt that you trusted them implicitly Well, today I'm speaking with Emiliano Troco. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, <laughs> hello. hello. Um, good to speak with you. First of all, could you give me a bit of a background about yourself, your past, um, how you've come to have an amazing studio in which you're producing all of these fantastic oil paintings? I mean, well, of paleo art, um, a whole range of paleo art as well. So what's your fine art background i know you studied in um the academy of fine art in venice so how do you get to the stage of having a studio and painting prehistoric animals yes um i, I have to go in the far past when i was a child it starts there like i think uh, most people okay. are doing this as a child, I have uh, um, always loved the nature, animals, uh, plant, and prehistoric things, uh, simply because they were um, subjects uh, illustrated in books. Uh, in the 80s, I am from the 80s, where I come from, illustrated books were the maximum visual uh, effective uh, of the time, no, there was no video games, no computer graphics or movies, and so the book was the maximum. Therefore, any suggestive image was um, an attraction for me, and uh, therefore, not only nature things, but also myths, mythology, legends, novels, stories, all uh, that was well illustrated by great professionals. I remember that I didn't uh, make difference between the various fields. And I remember they went uh, in periods. One month I was obsessed uh, with prehistory. Then I got bored and the next month I, uh, I rise at spiders and I take in hand the book about insects and other things. Then I got bored and picked up a book of the uh, Roman Empire or, or I have a period on plants. And so, uh, of course, there are all um, also uh, the typical passion of the children of the time, including, for example, the comics. Uh, obviously, not manga; they didn't exist in Italy at that time. But in any case, we always went uh, right. through the illustrated paper. Um, okay, there was, uh, but um, um, this. Cycling period, no, because I get bored like every child, uh, exhaust the, 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 themselves, and the cycle began again, begin again, and um, I pick it up again the same books as before, reinforcing my memory, and uh, without uh, realizing it, studying them, I finish for studying them with with uh, fun. 
uh, and among these passions, one is, was uh, prehistory, nothing special, a passion like another. This is the, 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 the first uh, approach to prehistory. Around the age, uh, so it's, it's strong in me, but not uh, monomaniac, it's only one of the passions. Around the age of uh, 20, when I decided to study as an artist, uh, I went to the Academy of Fine Arts in Venice. I studied painting uh, for uh, many years and explored various fields of expression. Uh, for two years, I did, I think, two or three, the first year, I did abstracts, then uh, portraits, then uh, uh, I looked for uh, personal styles. Uh, but uh, I, I always wanted um, what is a good painting. Um, the, and one thing, I have to say one thing, I, I want to, to give excuse for my English. I, I, this is not my, <laughs> I don't know English very well, so sorry. You're doing pretty well so far. <laughs> I <Carry> do, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and so I tried um, several different uh, styles and things. And uh, one day I approached to a realistic uh, painting, naturalism. Uh, but artistically, everything uh, in that uh, field was already explored in the, in the history of art. There was no need for a new portrait painter or a generic landscape painter. So I thought that um, my landscapes uh, must have a new, new uh, stimulo, uh, stimulus, uh, something um, that is not usually done in art. I started with uh, uh, man-made landscapes, um, what now is called uh, Anthropocene, and worked for a few years on the modifications that man makes in nature. Uh, latest uh, generation of agriculture, 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 machinery in agriculture, and modified um, environmental shells. Uh, without judging, there was no criticism of man ruining nature, not these easy things. I simply uh, document, documented uh, the facts. Then I started, I wanted to explore the past better, to understand well the present. Uh, no real painter has ever painting, uh, painted prehistory regularly. At least um, um, none who has entered in the real artistic circuits. The big names in art uh, are uh, far distant from that world. I understood the, that, and this role, for me, could be interesting. Um, and I began to include that period, some paleoscenes in my production, directly taken from the old passions of the childhood. So in one, one period in my life, I think uh, I was near the last years of Academy, 27 years old, I think, or near there, I start to uh, insert in my production scenes uh, from the past. In that period, I was not a paleo artist, obviously. I only integrated my nature scenes with some of the history of nature. And then, um, with like uh, something like very na natural uh, history of me and take a uh, very uh, strong passion from the past. Uh, it, it, come, it come out uh, very, very, very strong, this thing of prehistory. And so with easy, I, 
I, I, I add it more and more in my, my production. This is uh, how I become uh, mm, uh, familiar with Paleo Art. In that period, I didn't know the word Paleo Art. Uh, also, I remember, because I had some friend that uh, know better than me the, the, that world, and I, I realized that all that I have uh, learned about prehistory, uh, dinosaurs, and all the past beings was completely wrong after uh, near 30 years. All the names have changed, the anatomies have changed. What I, I know is like uh, fantasy, completely monsters. Uh, it was strong, um, it's like a strong uh, machine. Uh, scontro uh, with this because um, I have to to start study something about the new anatomies about is a new world was a new world this was um, something fascinating yeah I was going to say how did that make you how do you feel at that time then learning that all of these things that you thought you knew about dinosaurs and prehistoric animals from the books you read before were wrong and that you know you've been putting all this effort in suddenly you have to start start again virtually and learn all this stuff. I mean, how do you feel I, at that I, point? I, I hope to understand full your question. Um, I, I feel uh, like there, there was a new world to explore uh, completely, no? completely new for me. Uh, but um, going deep, I see mm. that, okay, there are some new uh, adjustments in anatomy, in behaviors, in uh, discoveries, because in the, in the meanwhile there was a lot of discoveries new, and but in substance, substance, yeah, a lot of things remain stable, remain correct. Okay, the classic uh, uh, big theropod was not uh, up like a kangaroo, uh, but is more horizontal. Okay, this is a bit different, but the animal is the same. Is big in, in the same way, is ferocious in the same way. So, okay, is to accommodate something, but I, 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 I discovered, after, after the first shock, after the first shock, I discovered that I can um, recuperate, I can um, recuperate uh, something of uh, the past. No, it's not all to waste, echo. Not, not all to waste what I learned when I was yeah. child. Oh, and the passion, the passion was uh, the same. It, it came out in, in life in the same uh, intensity of when I was child. So it's a, a true passion. Okay. Well, that's, that's fantastic. So basically, even though you were faced with having to learn so much about dinosaurs again, the passion was still there. The desire to learn was still there. And in the end, you found anyway that there was much still in common with what you'd learned before in terms of the overall, the gross shape of the animals, I suppose. And as you said, their massiveness and their basic anatomy. I mean, as you said, things changed. The theropods now were um, walking horizontally, but they were still big bipedal animals, you know. Um, one thing that was particularly interesting, for, well, there are a few things interesting there, but one of them was that you mentioned starting with landscapes and how and then how machines were interacting with landscapes because i suppose it's not that far a leap from there um from machines interacting in landscapes to huge animals interacting with landscapes 
I mean, and some of your art actually does depict that. Um, there's a piece that you uh, painted with, I think, Brontosaurus, and it's pushing into trees and knocking them over. And that, in a way, it's like a giant machine pushing over a tree. You know, it's part of a part of a landscape. Um, I mean, would, would, would you would you agree that the one thing sort of fed into the other there? That it was a natural sort of yeah. Step? The the meaning is this: when I approach in my landscape before being a photo artist, I only wanted to illustrate nature and to find um, a key to show nature to people in a new uh, way. No, no meaning for making. Landscape painter from the 18th century, there was a thousand of painters like this, or photographers, and and also making study in academy of oil painting on canvas. Also, I I started very far from the illustration. I I never done these images to illustrate. Uh, a sketch uh, um, only for illustrative, but uh, there is al- uh, always uh, artistic research, and uh, often the the en- there are not only animals. I, I did a lot of paintings only about plants or only about environment. But okay, I speak animals because mostly yeah. uh, the most recognizable paintings mine are uh, with animals. Like like all, um, is a pre- a, pre- is a, a subject. It's just a subject. It's just a subject to uh, to be accommodated in a in a figure, in a composition, in a artistic ideas, colors, shapes, uh, um, brush strokes. And is this like uh, the, the way I approached initially, more artistically than now? Now that I am a true paleo artist, I. I tell to myself that I become paleo artist, uh, full paleo artist mm, in the uh, 2018 year, because before I did also other things, merged uh, in the same period. Um, but in the first time, also now, eh, also now, but more in the first time, my was only a, a artistic approach. I never uh, think myself to be an illustrator. I am an artist that explored the world of the uh, deep time. Only, only this. Uh, but um, going yeah. uh, into uh, paleontology, uh, knowing some persons, some Italian paleontologists in the first times, I understand that um, times are changed. There are not the, the the past times where one artist was completely followed by a scientist that uh, uh, moves his hands uh, like he wants. No, now paleo artists have to make um, he, his own road by themselves. Not, not full. Sometimes I, I need help from paleontologists. But also I have to, to, to be more, more independent also in research. So uh, I start to be a bit more illustrative than before. I don't like it. Eh? I don't like it, and I try sometimes to come to become uh, back again to more artistic way. But is a is a, 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 a bilanciamento, a, a balance to make this. It is not easy because sometimes 
is an aesthetic right. thing. Other times is a more intellectual thing. So it's, it's not easy for me. I try to uh, to make the, the, the best balance possible. I guess because often, obviously, you're being commissioned to produce these things, and people want effectively an illustration. They want to see a particular animal, and they want all of its anatomy to be obvious. And then you've got to reconcile that with the fact that you want to do something that's quite different artistically. Um, I mean, and it does, it really shows in many of your paintings, the fact that, as I said, you have these fantastic landscapes and the animals really seem a part of the landscape, which is not always the case in Paleoa and especially illustration. The animals often stick out or they become very much the focus of the piece um, in a way that sort of detracts from the surroundings. But in all of your work, the landscape is always given as much uh, or more the, the attention second, the than second. the animals in it. Yes, and the, the animals are always a part. Say, more attention because uh, often I, for uh, my um, character, my, my behavior, I get bored to study too much. I want to paint. I want to act with uh, brushes, with canvas. I want to act. So I don't have uh, patience to study at all. Some, a lot of times I study only the end. When I know the anatomy, I know it, okay. And uh, sometimes I finish to finish to build the composition and the landscape after the animal. So for the animal, I know it, I study it, okay, it's, it's there. The animal, the, the landscape, mm, here is better a mountain or is better a lake. There is better... Um, a cloud or is better a free part of sky and then these things are often not always because I change my approach is different for every every paint is not the same approach but a lot of times yeah. I need more time to landscapes because I want to make running well the image no? and I make this example I think all all of you um, know my painting about Apatosaurus Luis, uh, the big one uh, walking in the snow. Yes, uh, yeah. I think it's one, yeah. <laughs> one, is one of yeah, them. I wanted to mention that I remember Actually. that I stay over that paint more than one month every day. I change uh, this image. And I have few photos of this, the steps because I, I don't do this thing of uh, step by step. I don't like this. But some photos I, I have for walking. Um, I remember I changed very, very uh, a lot of times. Uh, the animal was stable. I changed it four or five times, something like the tail, the color, but the, the, the position, the shape, and the, the principal things was there, there from the, the first day. I remember the sky, I changed it eight times. I changed the sky, the sky eight times. I, I remember <laughs> one full week, uh, seven days, one full week only on the sky. Every day, no more bluish, no more uh, greenish, no more, it's more like a sunset. No too much sunset is banal. No, not so much sunset, less sunset. More clouds, no too much clothes is easy. Working with a lot of clothes, or less clothes, I mean, not too much less because it's empty. I have to compose the, the, the part of the sky in some way, going uh, through the, 
the neck of the animal or any other part. I remember one full week on the sky, more than the time on the animal. Also, other time on the plants in the first, uh, primo piano, the first, the first uh, looking step, I don't know the word, primo piano. And so this is an example, not every time like this, sometimes I am um, lucky, I can finish one work in one day, eh, if I am lucky. But this luck uh, is part of uh, art, I think. And when I uh, act uh, as a fellow artist, I um, choosing composition, choosing the, the subject, I think this thing is much similar to a sport competition. One day is easy, I go easy, one day is very difficult. I have uh, every time this approach. I don't know how much I, it needs to make this painting. Now I am making a painting about some the Dilophosaurus. I am more than one week over. I don't like it. And maybe also I will cancel it if I, I don't find a way to finish. And, uh, this is a, a problem. The, my last painting, the, probably you see on the net, the rhinoceros of uh, the Stefano Rinus, uh, it, uh, it finished last week. Yeah, that was very easy because I started in a um, different approach. So the animal studies before uh, the, the landscape was uh, an idea that I already have. So no surprises. Then I worked very clear, stable, only step by step with no surprises. Only something about the colors. I changed in the last time the colors. So every painting for me is different. Is a different approach. This makes a lot of uh, suspense and um, stress. I am very stressed. Yes. But also is a surprise. I don't know what I will do. This is uh, how I work. It, maybe it's not correct. Maybe it's not good. I don't know. But I work like this. But yeah, it's different not, every time. No, no, no. There is no standard approach for you at all. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, well, a few things I wanted to ask. First of all, you mentioned earlier reading lots of, well, before you got bored of them, you read lots of dinosaur books when you were a child, um, and then you moved on to your spider books, but you read a lot of dinosaur books, illustrated dinosaur books. As you said, there were no video games or CGI or anything like that at the time. Um, were there... When you started moving into paleo art, were there any major influences in terms of historic paleo artists on your work? Because I can think of one name in particular that everyone, one artist that everyone thinks uh, of when they look at are, your yes. paleo art. Uh, this is a, this is a, this is a, 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 a crown of thorns for me, <laughs> but. Uh, um, I understand, I understand. Uh, obviously, Zdenek uh, Burian was uh, one of the, my books that I had. And uh, together with uh, Charles Knight, um, most people uh, speaks, uh, we, um, uh, speaks about me like uh, one man that prosecutes the, the style of the two painters. Most, mostly on Burian, but also some on, uh, on Knight, uh, Charles Knight. And, uh, it's true. Um, I have to say this thing. Uh, obviously, 
they uh, work in oil on canvas or sometimes other things, but uh, in classic way, similar to oil on canvas. This is the yeah. um, this is why I I am similar to them. Uh, the classic illustrator works on paper in the past illustrator works on paper with tempera. Uh, acrylic uh, come uh, after the period tempera work. And the effect uh, is different. The, the, the yeah. color um, is moving different in the support. So uh, a lot of the similitude is uh, done by the technique, by the materials, not the technique, by the materials. Also by the, uh, I think, the um, background, the, the, the classic background. Burian, if I don't go wrong, did Academy of Fine Art in Praga. And okay, his academy was very different at that time. In my, in my time, academy now is more modern, is not strictly. But okay, F, as you, you bred something of classic also now in academy. And I think is this approach with the, the classics that make um, to um, repercorrere, to repercorrere, to, to run, run back, run, run again, the same road. So sometimes I invented something very similar to Buran without looking at him. One is example that makes me very yeah. um, angry and furious, but is, is the reality. That is my work on mammoths. <laughs> I have made a lot of years ago two mammoths in the snow, I, I try to be the most original possible. I work with uh, some, I, I don't remember if bears in, in the pole, uh, animal, living animals. I'm inspired with things not paleo. And one day, one of my friends says, Ah, oh, is identical of that one of the. No, in effects, uh, it was very similar. So sometimes, I don't want it, but uh, the technique is this. Maybe the, um, the thinking, the artistic thinking, thinking maybe is similar because both uh, come from classic academy. I think this is the, because I, I always want to start to, to be um, not far from Burian because some atmosphere, some things I like, and I, and I like to, to go... Um, not similar, but um, like a, like a brother, like a, like the same field, like the same field. Don't want to say to to, to be yeah. uh, the prosecutor of Buria, but I think the techniques and this thing make more, uh, the most difference. I have to say to say now uh, a thing, important thing to explain the difference between me and Buria, and is you already understand? I speak before. The method. My method is not uh, the same. I sometimes I make the sketch. Sometimes I paint directly on the canvas. Sometimes I, I I make three, four, and then I cancel, or maybe I start one way and I change the landscape uh, completely, or I, I make a lot of um, modifies in, in running of the wall. Um, and also the type of uh, painting. He uh, works a lot with the drawing, and then before draw with pencil or with carboncino, and then filling the shapes with color. 
me, I, I, I work like this only 1%. Normally, I paint directly on the canvas with color and I build shapes like sculpting, uh, sculpture. I build, I build the shapes with the color in the first steps. Then I, so my shapes are initially rough and generic. And then after the work gone, they assume the correct form. So my paints are never finished because I can always go better in the shape, better in the, uh, in the, in the lines. Normally, is, this is completely different. He knows very well the lines in the first steps. Me, I don't know the lines. I only know the shapes and the, and the big things in the first steps. This is the, the first big difference between me and the, him. Mm. That's, technically speaking yeah it's fascinating and it, it's funny obviously you used that italian word earlier and you didn't know what it meant well you didn't know the translation and i didn't know exactly what it meant but i got the idea just from what you were saying about how you know what you was what you meant because basically it's you're almost reproducing accidentally this look with a with because you're using the same materials you're using uh, you have the classical background but actually you have a very different technique and process to Burian so it's almost a complete coincidence that you happen to be producing these artworks that end up occasionally looking a bit similar you mentioned the uh the bears in the snow being very similar in particular um but then again you know there's nothing wrong with being compared with Burian I mean he's one of the all-time greatest paleo artists uh, one of the most respected yeah. I think if you're being compared I, with him then it's Probably not a bad thing, even though it is. No, 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 I don't, no, it I, must be I, frustrating I, because you want to I be forget, praised on I your own terms. Say but... that I am very proud, <laughs> but also I, I don't think to be good as him. He, for me, is very, is, is, is better. Is very, uh, very complete artist more than me. I, I don't want to make um, too much uh, similitude or difference. Only this is that I, I said before is only. For clarify for some people that uh, are a lot of years that say this thing. No, you are different, yeah. and he is far greater than me. Okay, this is clear. But and I also I am proud and happy when people say uh, you are prosecuting the philosophy because intelligent people understand that I am not uh, not the same. Understand that I I have the spirit. Maybe of Burian, but with different with different approach to Palawar because now it's changing the science. So I, I understand that a lot of people understand. I am yeah. speaking to to the other part of people that are more superficial. Um, I suppose one last thing to ask about would be: Are you working on any commissions at the moment? Um, anything that you're able to talk about? Anything exciting? Um, if you can't talk about it, could you drop some hints or what kinds of things are you are you working on? Uh, now I am working. Uh, I always work on on, on, me, on, on things on things. Um, I regularly work on some commission that uh, come out uh, like surprises. Uh, three weeks ago, one my friend paleontologist asked to me to make a mammal of Pleistocene and now I cannot uh, speak about because he's in a yeah. scientific revision. Okay, I am a co-author mm-hmm. in that case. So I, I did, I already did it and I think it's a question of uh, some days and they come uh, uh, public. Um, the, the rhinoceros that I did is uh, 
like a commission, is a, a semi-commission, <laughs> I cannot say more, but it was committed by some, some, some people. Um, I am always, now I see it, is, uh, it's time to see it. Um, I, I, I take it uh, covered for, uh, for some years. I am working on a book, on a, my book, uh, with also other authors, we are four authors, uh, on a book about history of life, uh, all illustrated by me. It's a big project. Now is we are near to, not to finish, but to, to see the finish of the project. So soon, I, 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 I cannot say if it's some month or one year, but soon you will uh, know this project. I'm working on a big book uh, about uh, the history of life. Um, okay. so, so this is, I think, important for all people that ask this to me in, through the years. A lot of people asked me, are you making books? Did you ever make a book uh, with all your... Yes, I am making one, very big one. Uh, I hope that all things uh, go well because it's difficult, because I have to make a lot of... Uh, to finish, I have all uh, prepared all the images, but I have to finish a lot of images. Some images that um, you have seen last year, uh, a lot of them are for that book. Uh, but I merged these things. Maybe if I have a commission, I can insert that in this project, and maybe I can start also a second project one day. So I work like this. I have no no um, locked boxes, now I do this, now I do this. No, I do more things in the, in the, in the same period and, uh, and they take uh, a shape uh, in the time. But the, the big process that I am uh, following now is that book. I hope to make it uh, uh, public, the project, soon. Looking forward to that book then. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, that'll, that'll be fantastic to see. Really looking forward to that coming up and um, learning more about it. But um, yeah, for now, thank you for speaking with me. Uh, thank you, you, for all, for uh, having the, the, patience, <laughs> the patience to uh, listen to me. Yes, I think that's... Uh, now... Uh... That's right. now, now always comes that slightly awkward bit we do after the interview. Oh. Bravi, bravissimi, Emiliano. Grazie mille. Uh, si. You know, and then he said uh, grazie mille to Emiliano. Uh, or he just, I think he likes to be known as Troco, but whatever. And then he said that to him, but then I thought I'd probably not saying like it. So I didn't do it. <laughs> you wouldn't. I think he'd have appreciated it very much. I'm sure. Uh, well, I, I regret it now. I mean, uh, <laughs> at least uh, at least it would have been an attempt. <laughs> it's better than I they... think he'd have really appreciated that. Well, belatedly, uh, grazie mille, troco. <laughs> <laughs> no, gee, stop it. Uh, <laughs> Please excuse my appalling, appalling <laughs> accent. Um, uh, well, you know, I think I think he can understand that. English people, <laughs> ignorant people. <laughs> seriously i, I really listen i really enjoyed listening to that interview and um yeah he really had some uh, very interesting we things should to say. probably wrap up yes thank you everybody for listening and thank you to, again to troco for joining me and see you on the next one and by see you i mean talk to you
Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, yep. Mark, Nati, thank you for potting with me, and we'll see you in episode 25. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Arrivederci. <laughs> thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Haasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>